something that I wasn't planning on even really being in John today, but the Lord took me there yesterday and just had me kind of sit there for a little while. And then, so I was reading, I read a whole bunch of John, and then I don't remember what I was doing, but I went upstairs and Jordan had the audio Bible playing, and it was right exactly where I was reading. And I was like, I was just reading that downstairs. She's like, really? That's cool. I was like, yeah, we're married. You know how it is. And then uh, this morning, Rampart Global, we get a text message from Keith Shepherd, and it's John 6, um, John six twenty nine. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And uh, just another confirmation that the Lord wants us to really pay attention right now to some things that we always talk about grace and we always talk about him and making him bigger. And, and I think that's really the point of why we're together is to spur each other on to making him more sufficient in our lives. And we're just less tossed to and fro by the world and the scenarios of, of things. And something that the Lord really drew out of John for me this time. Some of you have heard me. I, I taught on the, the wedding at Cana. And the Lord had shown me a revelation of the grace that Jesus began his miracle ministry as the Son of God was at a wedding. And if you guys remember, at that wedding, there was water. And the water was in six earthen jars. Six, the number of man. So water in the man became new wine. And it's better wine than the original wine, which was Old Covenant. So the new wine of the wedding at Cana is literally the grace of the Lord Jesus. So it's, it was literally, but it's bigger than just a wedding to show that grace was coming. It was actually Jesus prophesying his, resurre- his, his crucifixion. Not his resurrection, his crucifixion. Because what Jesus understood, and it says that he grew in favor with God and man, right? He was under the law, so he was learning and he was understanding the scriptures. One of the things he knew, the scriptures tell us, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So he knew by faith he was to die. But he knew by faith his death was a wedding. Because by faith he believed that God using him would marry him to all of humanity. You follow that? So Jesus wasn't, he didn't lack purpose as he meandered through Jerusalem and Galilee and Judea. And I think one of the things that that Jesus, one of the reasons he took me back here to John is because he wants us to see beyond behavior of Jesus. Because here's what most Christians think when it says you must walk like he walked. They only relegate that to the things they do or don't do. Meaning, did I not swear today? Did I not lie today? Was I not rude today? You know, did I read my word? Did I pray and then we, we judge ourselves based on the lists of what we didn't do or the things we did do. And if we think our list of did do is better, we feel it's a successful day. And if we see that our list of didn't do, we think we have a, a worse day, right? And so he says there is no condemnation. So you can't have a didn't do list. But there's also no self-righteousness. So you can't have a did do list. You follow me? So you can't live your life in Christianity Worried about what you're not doing or worried about what you are doing. Jesus never did that. Jesus lived, period. But he lived with a purpose. 
And I think one of the things that God wants to draw us into, and it's about loosing a tether. One of the tethers that holds us low is that exact thing. Am I doing it? Am I not doing it? Am I doing it? Am I not doing it? I'm grounded then to this vessel. So literally that picture of the hot air balloon with the tether to it is when I think this flesh and bone has to perform or or create or do something to get me higher. Right? So what Jesus wants us to do is not just think in terms of what am I not doing and what am I am doing? Because the problem is if you're there, you're not concentrated on what your purpose is. Your purpose is not to be a good Christian. It isn't. Your purpose is to be love. Period. Every day, all the time, unmoved, full of truth, grace, mercy, life of Jesus inside you, hope of glory, unmoved by the world, unmoved by circumstances, unmoved by Nike putting out a Satan shoe with human blood in it. Unmoved. That didn't shake the kingdom of heaven. It's just another flailing of hell trying to prove itself. Flail all you want. Jesus wins. Right? Your children aren't where they are. Your parents aren't where they're supposed to be. Your, this isn't where it should be. That's not where it should be. Unmoved. So the only way to do that is to see beyond what you see. And that sounds maybe confusing a little bit, but... Jesus talks about how we have to have eyes to see and we have to have ears to hear. He says, first is the natural and then is the spiritual. So it's literally like I have to learn how to see and I have to learn how to hear. But now, as Christ is formed in me, I no longer base my life on what I see. And I no longer base my life on what I hear. I judge with right judgment. Remember last week we talked about one of the things that's taken out of context is the scripture... You without sin throw the first stone. That, that scripture is taken out of context because that was given under the law and nobody was without sin. In 2 Corinthians verse chapter 10, he says, you are to judge the house of God. And how do you do that? With right judgment. What's that judgment? Based on the righteousness of Christ, based on the fruit that is in keeping with repentance. So again, the tension of grace and truth is it's not to call someone out to belittle them, but it's to rebuke for the purpose of repentance or to commit them to Satan that they will repent. Guys, hear me. I don't want my kids or anybody in my life to have to take a 30-year journey through hell to find Christ. So whatever it takes today, break it loose. You see what I'm saying? Like, this, is, this thing isn't about like, well, don't judge them. Don't rebuke them. Don't tell them the truth. Do you parent like that? If you do, guess what you have? A wild banshee. Because you haven't given your child any boundary. What did Christ give? Boundaries. So grace lives in tension with the reality of, hey, you don't have fruit that's keeping with repentance. Let's have a conversation. Guys, I've told the elders in this church, you can ask them. I said, if you see something in my life that's going on and you don't come to me, I got a problem with that. I have a problem with it because I get blind the same way everybody else gets blind. And if nobody comes to me and goes, hey, bro, you're blind right here, then what kind of love is that? Do I really have a friend if they're not willing to come and speak to me about it? Do you get it? So that's not that's not less grace. That's actually mercy. 
to say, hey, you're being blind. There's a way you can see. Here's the sight. Jesus was never afraid to offend people. And his church should not be afraid to offend. Not for offense for offense sake, but offense for growth sake. Offense in love. Saying, hey, this is the truth. It's your choice. He did that to the rich young ruler, did he not? Rich young ruler comes up. He says, I've kept it all. He said, okay, sell everything you got. Give it to the poor. With a sorrowful face, he turned and walked away. Jesus didn't, oh, no, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, I know you, you have kept it. I'm really glad you kept it. Would you just come and follow me? I really need you to follow me. I need some more followers. And he said to the people who are going to go into all the world, he said, by the way, if you don't find this and you don't find people who have a desire for repentance, shake the dust off your feet and move on. He also said, don't cast your pearl before swines. Jordan had a circumstance in a situation where we have somebody that, you know, it's like you want to share the love of Christ or you want to share truth, but the person has zero teachability. Zero. If someone has zero teachability, there's no point in telling them anything. Because all they're going to try to do is argue with you about what they already know. And you're just throwing a pearl to us. I'm not calling the person the swine, but it's a reference to Jesus saying, hey, I only deal in truth with people who want truth. So you got family and relatives and people that you're trying to persuade and influence and you're driving these things, trying to get them through. Guess what? If they're not teachable, it's not coming because it's not up to you to persuade people. It's up to Christ to draw people when they're drawn. They'll come and they'll have a teachable heart and say, hey, I really need some help. I need to understand. Would you can you shed some light on some things? Not here's the 10, 15 different ways that I think, you know, what do you think? Like and now you're into an argument and a controversy. And Jesus said in the scriptures, don't give yourself over to vain babble and controversies and arguments. Why? They don't produce fruit, guys. I will tell you, I have tried to persuade people of the gospel. It is not fruit producing. And I've gone the other way where I thought I had persuaded people in the gospel and they ran into the world. And, I'm, and now I'm the devastated ministry guy going, I can't believe they just turned their back on it all. They never were in. Why is that devastating? Jesus wasn't devastated. He bought us all. He paid for us all. But at the end of the day, every person has that choice. So I share all that to, to tell you that Because of purpose in Jesus' life, he didn't get moved by any of those things. And and here's how I want to draw the purpose out is in the book of John, there are seven miracles that Jesus performed. And I'm just reading through and I was reading through yesterday and I get to the miracle about the man born blind. And I was reading him through the miracle of the man born blind, which we'll touch on. But as I was reading through the miracle of the man born blind, I recognized there's something to the specificity of Christ and the record of John as the son of God as to why and where in the sequence of miracles that occurred that have to do with the life of Jesus. So all I've ever heard preached or taught about the miracles of Jesus is how they relate to me, right? How the man born blind, well, was it his parents that sinned or was it him? And Jesus references like, it's not about who sinned and who didn't, you know, and, and people get caught up into the man who was blind. You get what I'm saying? Like nobody, I've never heard it preached about the miracles of Christ from the perspective of that they were actually about Christ. 
Because what happens to us is we think with natural minds and we get sucked into natural stories and we think naturally and try to get God mixed into it to try to figure out where we're headed with it. And then we're frustrated because we've made mud with our hands and put it on people's eyes and their eyes haven't been opened. And now all we've done is made that miracle about us instead of making it about him. Do you guys understand that? And like literally I was sitting reading this miracle and I'm just like, hold on a second. Something bigger is happening here. Something bigger that God wants to tie together. And that's just how he speaks with me. He's like, he's like Justin, see what you can't see. Hear what you can't hear. Right? And I just sat with him and I was like, okay, help me. And I just start writing. How I learn from the Lord is I literally just start jotting things down. Because my jot, the first jot leads to the second jot, leads right. to the third, leads to the fourth. And pretty soon, it's like what he said to Habakkuk, write it down because it will clarify itself. You know, and I'm just like, I'll just do what the word says, write it down. You know, like if you guys sat with me and could see in my brain at the beginning of any revelation I've ever received, I'm just like, I have no idea where I'm headed. You know, like I have this little tiny piece. I just got to roll with it. So watch this. First miracle Jesus performs. Think about it this way. It's about him. The miracle he performed was about him. How do I know that? Jesus lived under the law, became the law, fulfilled the law. Every miracle he performed in the Gospels was performed under the law. So the scriptures, remember what he told the Pharisees? You study the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But they point to me. So when we read supernatural things in the Gospels and get frustrated that we haven't manifested those things, we're making it about we. Instead, we're supposed to be reading our scriptures through the first lens of how does this glorify Jesus? How does this make Jesus bigger? How does it make Jesus more sufficient? How does it make Jesus more able? How does it make Jesus more redemptive? How does it make Jesus more of a victor? How does it make Jesus overall? Right? Because if I leave my scripture reading time and I'm wondering about how I, eh, I need to be in the word because he's the word and he's going to manifest the word and I'm going to become the word. And when I become the word, I'm no longer concerned about what I I'm concerned about where he and where we're going. That's where purpose comes from. Jesus wasn't concerned with and the Bible says in Romans chapter 15, he never pleased himself. So his purpose, first of all, he understood. I'm always headed where the father wants me to go. And the end of my journey is death. And everywhere from my journey now till the end is love. Very simple. I will love and I will obey and I will love and I will obey. I will love and I will obey. I will love and I will die. But his faith said, I will raise again. And he had to die in faith, guys. Jesus didn't die with this knowing like for sure certain deal. If he had a for sure certain deal, guess what? He didn't perfect faith. And your faith is worthless. He had to die believing the father would raise him from the dead. He had to. And he couldn't just run to the cross and bypass all the journey because he had to go through the temptations and all of the wavering and all of the things to perfect what you and I would one day endure. And he had to go to the Garden of Gethsemane because he could not run to the cross without first asking the father, is this your will? 
Because Abraham told Isaac, you're going on the altar. Bound him up. Christ's mind, I could be bound up, but in the 11th hour, guess who can come through? My father can come through. He even told him, he said, if I called 12 legions of angels right now, guys, guess what? This thing would be over. He knew by faith, but he had to ask to not, pre- not commit a presumptuous sin on the father. So his purpose came from understanding where he was headed. The problem for most of us is we don't think about where we're headed. All we try to do is apply Jesus to the, to the day that I have. Come what may happen, stance day, I just hope I can act like Jesus today. I don't believe that any believer is supposed to live that way. I believe that every believer has a hope and a purpose and a plan that's been designed for them from the foundation of the world to perform the good works that God created in advance for all of us to do. And those good works to do include an assigned journey that you are to be walking on. Which means you'll have stages and steps and seasons that you'll walk through because they're the preparations for the season that is to come. That one day you'll get to the very fulfillment. There's no retirement in the kingdom of heaven. Right? There's no retirement in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not, I'm not working a job as a good Christian to someday sit on my rear end and look back on my trophies of good Christendom and tell the stories that once were. Guys, I'm going to go to the grave talking about the right now reality of Jesus Christ and the hope of glory. That's what real living in Christianity is. That's what Jesus did. So the entire thing was so simple because it's whatever made the Father honored, whatever glorified the Father, and whatever loved people. And that was his journey. He didn't have to walk down this detour and that detour. Hey, Jesus, the Greeks are here. They really want to hear what you know. Just going where the Father wants me to go. Just doing what the Father wants me to do. Guys, do you realize how much simpler life can become when we eliminate all the natural thinking? Yes. So in these miracles, watch what Jesus does. First miracle, John chapter 2, wedding at Cana. Jesus is prophesying of his cross. And he's prophesying through the miracle of turning the water in men's jars to the new wine of the new covenant. Do you realize the water was not contained within wineskins? It was contained within the rock. The water was contained within the rock. And because it was in a rock and not a wineskin, it could be new wine like that. Guess what we are? Jars of clay. So the what? The new covenant can come in a man's life like that. A woman's life like that. Mm-hmm. New wine like that. Mm-hmm. Not about the wineskin, right? Mm-hmm. It's about the reality of the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's only possible through the death of Jesus. So his first miracle in John chapter 2, he says, I'm going to die and it's going to be a wedding because I'm buying a bride and my life will be transformed into the new covenant, new wine. Far better than the original wine that everybody had already drank. And the master of the house said, who saves the greatest wine for the last? The king of glory. We have been drinking that wine of this covenant. Like we are living this wedding. We're living this thing out. And he prophesied it in his purpose. Okay, so guys understand this. When he says to Mary, what does this have to do with? Boom. the key to understanding the miracle what's it have to do with me 
I, I think less of the question was not like this. What's that got to do with me? And more, what does this have to do with me? You see, just framing a question in just a slightly different direction gives you a whole new perspective. If we read it through natural eyes and how we act, how do we act? Well, what does this have to do with me? And we put humanity on Jesus instead of letting Jesus be put on us. He says, what does this have to do with me? And then he turns the water into wine. And there's rejoicing and there's a feast and there's a party and there's a there's a celebration, right? That comes out of this new wine miracle. So that's the first miracle. By the way, it happened in Cana. In Cana, the word Cana means reed. Jesus understood something and he quoted it himself. A bruised reed you'll never break. I think the very place of the miracle had everything to do with Jesus prophesying to himself this death that's coming. I know my father will not break me. I know my father won't break me. So that's the first miracle. Second miracle goes in. So first fruits miracle, right? So think about it. First fruits, right? Because if you think about the way God does things, that first thing is cross. Second miracle that happens, he goes back to Cana. And what does he encounter? An official's son. Government official, his son. And the government official says, my son is sick, near unto death. Please come and touch him so that he will live. And Jesus doesn't say anything. He just keeps moving. Like with the, with the official. They meet a servant on the way and the servant comes in and says, hey, your son, don't trouble the master. Right? Don't trouble the master. You know what Jesus is doing? He's prophesying his own resurrection. He said, your son will live. Who's the chief government official of all the world? Abba. And Abba's son would be near unto death. But he prophesied in his second miracle at the place of the reed. Your son will live. Let me just find where that's at. I told you it was between 2 and, two and 11. It's in uh, 446. It says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Sorry, I mixed up two, two uh, resurrection stories there a second ago. Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, At what hour? And he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour. When Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So that first miracle and that second miracle have everything to do with Jesus. Not only dying, but raising again. I will live. Your son will live. The third one. Jesus ends up in Jerusalem. 
And so in Jerusalem, what would Jesus face? You talked about this, Dave. That it's the religious epicenter of the world. So if you think about it through Jesus' prophetic timeline in his mind, I have to die, I will be raised, but guess what I'm going to encounter? Right? Religion. So he goes back to Jerusalem. Guess where he goes in Jerusalem? Bethesda. Anytime you guys see something starts with Beth in the Bible, it's house of. So Bethlehem, house of bread, Bethlehem, house of bread, right? So Bethesda, you know where he went in Jerusalem? The house of kindness. He went into the middle of religion. On this third miracle, he goes to the house of kindness. And who does he go to? Someone who can't move. And he's been there for how long? Since the beginning. And he's not able to move. And when Jesus encounters him at the pool of Bethesda, what's the purpose for the encounter? What's, what's he say to him? Yes. Do you want to be healed? This is now the first point where you get choice. How do you know you're a new man? You have a choice. You said it last week, Dean. The reason I know the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God is true, I actually have a choice. I can choose to not be tempted or choose to not grab hold of what I'm tempted with. It's a better way to say that. Right? So the choice now, Jesus lays it back on him and says, do you want to be healed? The guy doesn't even answer the question. He goes, excuse. Well, every time the water's stirred, I don't have anybody to let me in. Like, you know, I don't know how to get healed and I don't know what I could do. You know, I can't do the worm fast enough to land in the Ripley pool. You know, like whatever the whatever the situation. That was my paraphrase there. But, you know, he want does he want to be healed? So he can't perform. Watch. He can't perform. For his healing. So grace through the resurrected Lord. Instantly. Not because of performance. Not even because of answering the question right. Not even because of anything the dude did at the house of kindness. He didn't do anything. He didn't even respond correctly. You want to be healed? Well, there's so many reasons that I can't get healed. Pick up your bed and walk. What? So here's this miracle in the center of religion that Jesus is saying, this is my purpose. It's to get people who are not able to move into a position to begin to move. Grace empowers people to move. Before grace, what is it? You're just an invalid laying beside a pool, like hoping you're fulfilling what you're supposed to fulfill and not having an ability to even get where you think you need to go. Like, I can't even get where I need to go. Jesus comes. Take it up. Walk. Meets him again. Comes back around. He's like, hey, walk in the right way. Does he not encounter him and say, don't go the way you thought you were supposed to be going, but go in the right way? The guy's like, I don't even know who healed me. The Pharisee's like, who healed you? By the way, why do you think Jesus did it on the Sabbath? And by the way, do you know his brothers before that were like, hey, you should come up to the feast. Like, you should come to Jerusalem. And he's like, guys, I'm not going to Jerusalem. 
So they all leave, and what does Jesus do? Okay, I'm heading to Jerusalem. And he goes in private. Sneaky Jesus rolls into Jerusalem during the feast. And they're like, but if you want to be known, you should go and do the works that you do. And you should prove yourself as the prophet. And he's like, he's like you seek the glory that comes from men. I am glorified by my Father. You see, the miracle wasn't, all, wasn't about the man getting up from the pool and us figuring out, well, why was he there for 38 years? And I don't know. And, you know, like, should we tell people to get up and walk? And that's us focused, guys. He performed this miracle to say, I'm Christ and I get people moving. That's what it was. It was about, I don't seek the glory of you, my brothers, people in the church. I seek the glory of the Father. And the Father said, when you die and when you're resurrected, you'll start getting people moving. He's prophesying, guys. Like His miracles are prophesying His future. So, in the fourth miracle, the man comes up. He starts to walk, right? So, what's the fifth miracle? Sorry, that was third miracle. I'm now on the fourth miracle. Fourth miracle. He goes to the Sea of Tiberias, the other side of Galilee. Where does he go? Top of a mountain. What's the purpose? Feed. Feed. It's first in the natural and then in the spiritual. What did he tell, what did he tell people? They were like, they're like, well, our father, we're from, we're from Abraham and, and our father, you know, we were given the bread that was from heaven and Moses gave us the bread from heaven. And Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. And they were like, blasphemy. He's like, before Abraham was, I am. So he takes to the top of the mountain for the purpose of feeding the people. This is a part of the purpose of Jesus on planet earth. What does he tell Peter? Feed the sheep. Care for the lambs. What's Peter going to feed them? He fed them Christ and the good news of the gospel and 3,000 were added in a day. I'd say that's a pretty good multiplication. Jesus did 5,000, Peter did 3,000. It's not even about the number. It's about the multiplication of Christ being the manna of heaven. Is he really the bread of heaven or is he not? He does a natural miracle to declare himself the feeding and the feeder and the food for all men. There isn't another meal, guys. There's not another meal you're going to eat. You're not going to eat Jesus with a side of. He said, unless you eat my flesh... And drink. You can't even have Jesus and a bottle of water. You got to have Jesus and a cup of wine, a cup of blood. That's the meal, guys. The meal is Christ. Christ alone. That's it. Like he's not a five course meal. He's the one course meal that satiates and satisfies. And he was proving himself to be the feeder and the food and the supply for anybody who would come. Did, were there requirements in the field? No. Guys, make sure, like, well, if you sit cross-legged, you'll get food. And if you sit, in, you know, if you sit this way, and actually if you stand, you can't have any. And if you wear the wrong tunic, none for you today. It was come. It was Isaiah 55. Come and eat. Come and buy without money. Eat and drink and be merry. I am who I said I am. It's grace, guys. It's grace. He just performs a miracle and declares himself the grace of, the, of, of all the world for people to, to enjoy. 
That's the fourth miracle. So the fifth miracle, number of graces, five. Disciples push out from this amazing miracle. Guess what they're thinking about? Man, did you see? He just split that, that loaf of bread and it just kept going. And them fish and everything was just going and going and going. Man, row the boat. I am, Peter. Come on, John, row. Andrew, put your back into it. Man, you guys ever seen a wind like this? This is out of control. We've never seen a wind like... Peter, I'm serious, bro. Start rowing the boat, man. We're not going anywhere. This is ridiculous. Right? Out onto the water steps. Jesus. Watch this. We are washed in the water of the word. Grace is fully supported by the word. Jesus is fully supported by the water. It's a miracle pointing back to the reality that all you'll find in this word is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not influenced by storms, winds, waves, gravity, anything else. He's not influenced by that. This miracle is not about the disciples and the torment. And, you know, don't be like the disciples in the boat freaked out. You'll be freaked out, bro. Let me tell you, you're in a storm in a boat. You're going to be a little bit afraid. And because you're a little bit afraid, you can remember grace stands on top of the water. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. I see the king of glory walking across the waves. He's coming my way. And I say, peace, be still to this storm. Yes, yes. Why? Because Christ is in me and he's not afraid of it. And I'm not afraid of it. So let's just roll. Because guess what happens? When you realize Christ is in you, you won't sink either. Roll, roll, roll your boat. Peter's not getting anywhere. Jesus is on the water. They're like, what is going on? What was in the bread that Jesus split? That's what I want to know. That's what they were probably thinking. Like, man, there had to be some moldy yeast up in that bread, you know. They're seeing him walk across the water. Watch what happens in this miracle. Super important. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I... Do not be afraid. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say anything to the storm. You know, sometimes we waste all of our time focused on the storm. I get, get you behind me, storm. I'm going to tear down this stronghold. Storm's trying to take me out. This stinking storm, this strong winds. It's I. Don't be afraid. Be like, you know what, Jesus? Hey, storms are storms. You and me, let's just ride the boat. That should be my new response, right? That's what I need. I need Jesus. I don't need all the other distraction. So he didn't say in this miracle, again, remember, what's he prophesying? He's prophesying of himself. It's me. Justin, in the Passion Translation, it says, don't be afraid. You know who I am. Ooh. That's good. Don't be afraid. You know who I am. But watch what happens, guys. Everything he's prophesying has to point back to grace or grace is nothing. Remember that? 
It has to be about him and he has to be big enough. If he's not, then grace is a sham and we can all leave right now. Because ain't nobody getting there unless it's true. Watch what he does. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Peter, row! I am rowing! You know, John, put your back into it. Jesus, yeah, get in. We're there. We're good. Who rowed? I don't know. It wasn't me. Me neither. I don't know. Did anybody row? I wasn't rowing. Well, how do we get here? Because grace gets you where you could never get yourself. And it gets you there now and it gets you there fast. That's why repentance is possible in an instant. Because you're already where you thought you needed to get. You don't got to row your guilt boat across any rivers. Hear me. I'm telling you, Jesus is prophesying these miracles all about himself saying, I am your hope. I am your solution. I am where you can't get. You're going to get there when I'm in the boat. How amazing. Instantly. It wasn't like row harder, row faster. They fast forward. It was boom. Jesus stepped on that boat and that boat ended up where it needed to be. Amazing. That's the miracle number five. Number five being the number of grace. That miracle in and of itself says Christ is always supported by the word. Grace is always supported by the word. You will never not find grace through the word. And when you are in grace, you'll be exactly where you need to be all the time. No more rowing your boat, Ronnie. Throw the oars away. That's right. Yeah. Yep. They weren't, it wasn't, because what, what, what occurred to me was, were they almost there when they got there? Because like, that stood out to me instantly. Yeah. So I, my brain got curious, how far were they instantly at? They were just started. They just they started. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Three, three and a half miles, it says. They started, yeah, they were three, and, and the Sea of Galilee is big, so yeah. it was taking them a while. Yeah, they were there. So sixth miracle. So here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to raise. He's going to live. When he lives, he's actually going to bring movement to the people from his kindness. His movement from his kindness is going to create the opportunity for those who are hungry to be fed. Those who are hungry to be fed will always be fed on grace. Okay? So guess what grace will lead you and I back to? Religion. It doesn't change. Sixth miracle goes back to Jerusalem. And in the epicenter in, in Jerusalem, and if you read, um, you read uh, John 6, 7, and 8, you'll get a good feel for this. I won't do it for the, for the sake of time. It's the Feast of Booths. It's, it's the feast season. It's, you know, it's all the religion that's going on. Jesus has done these things. People are aware of these things. And they say to him, this will give you an insight into it. Um, they said in chapter 8, verse 31. Okay, well, let me back up. I'm going to go 8, 21 and read down. Backing up again. I'm going to go to 12. 
Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Religion. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. You do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He can't get much more clear, like, what he's saying to these religious people. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Religion wants to arrest you guys. Wants to keep you from speaking the truth. Wants to keep you from seeing the better things, seeing the deeper things, taking your balloon and cutting your tethers. It wants to keep you tethered. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I don't know if you can tell, but that's pretty offensive. But it's true. And understand, when you tell the truth to people, you give them the opportunity to be set free. If you conceal the truth for the fear of offending them, you are keeping them from a possible reality check that will change their life forever. Truth and love. He said, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, guys, think about this. Religion always thinks from the natural perspective. The responses are always natural. Right? He said, where I'm going, you can't come. Oh, he must going to kill himself. Like, that's such a natural mindset. It's not a spiritual mindset. So hear their responses. Religion will, in my life, religion acts on the natural way of man. Okay? Kingdom operates on the spiritual things of God. Religion in my life will act on the natural wisdom of man. Okay? And that's what you see over and over and over. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Do you know what you can say today if you have Christ in you? I am not of this world. I am not of this world. I'm above. I'm not from below. I am from above. It's true. If it's true for him, it's true for me. Otherwise, it's not true. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? (laughs) Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the father. Shocker. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
Watch this verse. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now watch. So Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him. Right here we would think, hey, revival, they believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him. They, who? The ones who believed in him. Guess what just happened? They just got offended. They answered him. We're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Guys, religion thinks it's free. It's the scariest, most dangerous disease in all the world. Religious people think they're already free. And the second Christ said, believe in me and you'll be free, offended their sense of freedom. You see that? Real grace will, 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 will offend people's sense of freedom. Because their proof in their freedom is their stack of bricks. I'll prove to you that I'm free. Look what I have done for the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> prove to you I'm free. Christ in me. Hope of glory. <laughs> Period. You get it? See, natural thinking is I'm free because of this. Spiritual thinking, I'm free because he performed a miracle. So here he goes. Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is a revival meeting where people believed in him. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot hear my word. You cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews who believed in him answered him, saying, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Yeah. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he's the judge. 
Think about that statement. So far, we're through five miracles. What were all five miracles about? Jesus being glorified. There is a father who seeks the glory for the son. And Jesus just made that statement. He seeks that I would be glorified. He does what pleases the father. What pleased the father? All of those miracles pleased the father because they made much of the son of God. And they prophesied the reality that was to come. You get it? He said, it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to the natural, 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 right? Religion, natural, natural, natural. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to throw at them. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Chapter 9 is the sixth miracle. He passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. Every man who's ever been born. Blind from birth. In the center of religion, following what he just declared, he encounters a man who's never seen life. When you're born blind, you've never seen life. You've seen death. What is death? Darkness. How did John 8 start? I am the light of the world and the life for all men. He encounters a man born blind to glorify Jesus that real grace will still stand in the center of religion and encounter the blind and give them sight. So this man born blind, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, this is the disciples, they were, that he was born blind. So that's law mentality, that's natural thinking. Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God. John six twenty nine. This is the work of God. Do you believe in him whom he sent? You guys understand something? Jesus had to believe in himself to perform the miracles he performed. He had to believe that he was the Messiah by faith. That the works of God might be displayed in him. He's literally saying, I have to believe in who I am sent by him in order to do the works of God in this man's life. Get this. You and I are on the exact same path. If he is in me, then I must live as he lived in the world. Meaning this, I have to believe that the son of God in me, right? Believe that the son of God in me manifests in the exact same way that he yes. always did. Yes. Yes. Real love, real power. Yes. Right? So he said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. 
Night is coming when no one can work. So Jesus is at the cross. Jesus is crucified. Jesus enters a tomb. Night falls. You guys, what happened to the sun when Jesus was crucified? It was darkened. Night came. And in the period of Jesus being in the tomb for three days, right? From Friday to Sunday morning, there was night. Because guess what? There was neither son of man on earth, nor was there spirit of God in man. No works were taking place on planet earth. Do you see the the profundity of Jesus? That's a cool word to say. Like, it's so profound what he's saying. He's saying we got to work now because night is coming. He's prophesying there's a moment coming when I will be separated from the Father. I'll be gone. You can't come. And nor will my spirit be at work on the earth. Blows my mind. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He was not in the world Friday night. He came back in the world on Sunday morning. The light of the world is still here, raging, burning bright, and will burn bright till the last day. You hear me? There's only one period of night, and it's over. Why do you think there's no night in, the, in, in heaven? Because the King of kings and the Lord of lords is there and he's the light of all light. Yes, Come on. We're the light of the world, Ron. Right. Yes. We are the light of the world. He will never, there will never be a night season again where the works of God can't be worked. That's done. This blows your mind. Jesus is so amazing. He said, having said these things, he spit on the ground. Guys, does anybody, Dave, you'd know. The spitting in the Jewish tradition Spitting in the face. Yeah, that's a huge insult. Huge insult. Yep. Yeah, it's like life changing. So spitting was like, so the very offensive act of spitting is what Jesus chose to show that in grace, it will offend the flesh. Like it wasn't so that we run around spitting on the ground and rubbing it on blind people's eyes, guys, like. I think we get so confused because we're so natural minded. And what yeah. Jesus is saying, like, you're not, from, you're not from below. You're from above. Right? And if you don't see that my miracles weren't about, they were about me and not about you, you'll always be tangled in you. And I want you to be tangled with me. Yeah. Right? And then in the moment, whatever the new thing is he's doing, he might have you just pat somebody on the back and they're healed. their eyes are opened up. It's, see, we, he's not relegated to these boxes we try to fit him in. Well, it says it in the word, right? Yeah, and how little and shallow have I read my scriptures for most of my life until I encountered the real son of God who lives inside me and said, just sit down with me for a minute, son. I have something to show you. And in this sixth miracle, the miracle of man, the number of man, what does he do? Give sight to the blind. 
But he doesn't do it by touching him and him seeing. Again, grace means you have a choice. Grace always means you have a choice. And you know what the choice was for the man born blind? To do exactly what he just preached to the religious people. Abide in my word and you will not see death. All this man's ever seen is death. Abide in my word and you will not see death. Rub the spit in his eye. And what does he say? Go. Wash in the pool. Shalom. Shalom. It means sent. Sounds like Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Opening the eyes of the blind. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise and shine for your glory of the Lord is shown upon you. That you might preach the good news to the poor and set the captives free. It sounds a lot like the scriptures where he said, Now that I've offended your flesh with my saliva, you abide in my word and you will not see death. He believed and he went. And he washed because he heard. He heard what Christ said. He didn't even see what he did. And he was, saw life for the first time. It was a believing moment for him. The miracle of the man who's been born blind is the same miracle for every person who will be born again from yes. now till the, to the end of time. It's a mind-blowing, amazing opportunity that every person has. That guess what? You don't have to row your boat there. You just have to believe. That's it. Believe in the one that was sent. The one that was sent opened the eyes of the blind in the epicenter of religion. People love to talk about how Jesus didn't do miracles in this town or that town because there wasn't enough faith and there wasn't enough. I don't have all that answer, but I'll tell you something. There wasn't a lot of faith in Jerusalem. But the Son of God doesn't need your faith. He's got His own. And I got some of His. And it's increasing. And the more that increases, watch out. Uh-huh. A bunch of Jesus is running around. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point. That a hundred million Jesuses would just be running the earth. That's right. Doing the works of God. Letting the Son of God be glorified. And even when we screw it up, He's still glorified. Yeah, that's right. So this miracle done in Jerusalem is all about us seeing this ministry of reconciliation take place. Are people going to be offended? Yes, praise God. I would rather someone be offended and repent than be satiated and go to hell. What kind of preaching and teaching and helping is that? Let me satiate the crowd and get in everybody's social agenda pocket and hope everybody comes and follows me in a building so that what? A bunch of people get to go to hell and burn forever and be separated from real love? I'm sorry, but it's time for somebody to stand up and offend some flesh. Spit in some eyes and say, hey, you want to abide in him? Abide in him because he'll abide in you. And when he does, it's all love and all surrender and all sacrifice till the last day. Get this. Miracle number seven. Where does he go? Bethany. It's the house of affliction. Guess who is in the house of affliction? The ones he loved. The ones Christ loved. What did he say? He said, you will be persecuted for my name's sake. Not because you're a good Christian. In fact, 
You will not be persecuted if you're a good Christian and if you tote that and run around with it and carry the badge, good Christian. You'll actually be celebrated, lifted up, put on platforms, and people will come and follow you. It's true. But you walk with Jesus and you'll be persecuted. You'll be hated. Why? Because the moment somebody wants to claim their self-righteousness and you rely completely on Him, you've just offended them and you've offended their pile of bricks and they don't want anything to do with you because you're, you're not affirming my bricks. That's right. No, you're right. I'm not affirming your bricks. Your bricks are worthless. Uh-huh. And I won't, affirm, I won't affirm them. Because if I affirm those and satiate you and you go to hell, is that really worthwhile? Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do I not have a great pile of bricks? I didn't know you. I didn't love you. You didn't love me. You know, people talk about like, well, Jesus' love is unconditional. Love, his love is un, un, you know, unmatched. Let me just tell you something. It's true, but His love puts people in hell. It doesn't look like our love. There's a condition. Abide in my word. Believe what the Father said. Walk in me. I came to bring a sword. Guys, Jesus didn't just sing Kumbaya at weddings. I came to bring a sword, to kindle a fire on the earth, to offend flesh until flesh repents. Because when flesh repents and comes in this relationship, it's the greatest thing that ever could be. It's exactly how it was originally created to be. So this seventh miracle, he goes in. So the number seven is a perfect miracle, right? Or a culmination. In, in Scripture, seven is, is culmination. So there has to be something God is pointing to about the Son of God in this seventh miracle at Bethany. The, the people with natural minds are saying, Jesus, if you would have come, our brother Lazarus would not have died. Sounds like they have good faith. They do. Guys, faith of a mustard seed moves a mountain. But if you're trying to move the wrong mountain, it won't move. Right? Like, I don't need to move mountains for the sake of being a good faith guy. Like... See the mountain I moved? Nice brick. Throw it away. No, I need faith for whatever the grace is that God has encountered with me and where I'm headed. Like, I need grace for today, and I need grace for encountering what I'm to encounter, and I need grace to pray into what I'm supposed to be praying for. I could take on every social agenda in all the world, and Jesus would say to me, You'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. You guys understand, like, we can get overwhelmed and, and swamped with stuff we're not supposed to be a part of. Because we're not purposeful like Jesus was. And now Jesus is in me and he's saying, Justin, get purposeful. Because the time's short. Time is coming. The end days are coming upon us. And you need to move with purpose and with destiny. And not be distracted, persuaded, or shaken by anything that's coming. That's where we're at, guys. It's where the church has always been. We're just closer than they were. That's it. So in the seventh miracle, the house of affliction is where the people he loves dwell. And they say with natural minds, if you would have come, he wouldn't have died. He said, he's going to be perished. Not that this, this illness will lead to his death, but that the Son of God would be glorified. Not that Lazarus would be raised, that the Son of God would be glorified. We get it twisted. We're like, this miracle is about Lazarus. He loves him so much. I will contest anyone on this scripture. Jesus wept. And I have heard it preached and preached and preached and preached about how Jesus was so affectionate for Lazarus that even his death caused him to weep. 
I would challenge it a hundred times out of a hundred because the scriptures say what causes the Son of Man grief is unbelief. That he wept because of the lack of faith, not because of Lazarus being in a grave. Foolish to think that the Son of Man, who's about to raise him from the dead, is going to cry in front of his grave going, Oh, Lazarus. No. Get our natural minds, Lord, and twist them so that they're finally spiritual minds. In Jesus' name. That's what we need. The spiritual mind says Christ knows what he's up to. And grief comes because there's a lack of faith. But the lack of faith didn't prevent the miracle. Guys, in any of the seven miracles, guess who was not a part of the equation? The people in the miracle. So when you haven't been healed and you sit in your room and wonder about your faith and why you weren't healed and why it didn't happen and how come this and why was that, you've made the world about you instead of making it about Him. Spend that time in your room with Him and see where He takes you. I'm preaching to me, guys. This is what I want. I don't want to be consumed by what's not. I want to be consumed by Him. He is. Right? And I do. I get sometimes sidetracked. What's not? What's not? What is? You. You are. Let's go. What are we going to do? I have a purpose. I have a destiny. So he encounters at the house of affliction those that he loves. And in fact, in, in uh, John chapter 11, 1 through 3, he says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and, and his sister, her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love... He is ill. Jesus heard it. He said, Silness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. <laughs> Faith, man. I just, when I read these words of Jesus, I used to just read my Bible and, like, yeah, it's Jesus. This is his faith, living faith in front of my face. This is him believing what he's saying. He doesn't have, like, some. No card. He's believing this. You're like, we're not just, you guys get it? He separated himself from divinity, even though he was the son of God. He still said he set it down, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped. But he let himself be the son of man. Now, Jesus, verse five, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were, not, were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he had said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Jesus, or Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us, go, let us also go, that we may die with him. <laughs> you know that Thomas was the one who didn't believe? Mm-hmm. Thomas is the one right here. He's like, let's go, we're going to die with him. 
Sounds like Peter. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb. Four days. Hmm. Just happened to be four days? See, these are the kind of things that I love about Jesus. The specificity and the purpose with which he walked. Okay, God, why four days? What's going on? This is about the Son of God being glorified. This is the culmination miracle of you revealing yourself as the Son of God. What is this miracle really about? So I asked the Lord, why four days? And the Lord took me to 1 Corinthians 15. So I'll read this to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. For the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the, of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. <laughs> what did Jesus say about Lazarus? You want to sleep. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, which is believe in the one he sent, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Then he took me to Revelation 11. Why four days, God? Last days. So if this, if this is the seven miracles of God in John are pointing to the life and purpose of Jesus, what's the culmination event of Jesus' life? Is it not the last days? Is it not the, the catching away of the bride? Is it not the wedding feast? Is it not the battle of Armageddon? The unfolding of all that will unfold at the last days? Is this just Jesus, 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 and then whatever? No. There is a purpose. There is a destiny. He revealed this thing to one of the disciples, John the Beloved, because he said to the disciples, not every one of you will perish before you seeing the coming of the Son of Man. John saw the coming of the Son of Man and wrote it in Revelation. That scripture was fulfilled through the life of John the Beloved. So Revelation has to hold a key to what John Chapter, this last miracle is actually unfolding for us. So Revelation 11 in 1 through 3, real simple. I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So I just submit it to you. Lazarus is in a grave for four days. Jesus was actually in the grave from Friday night till Sunday morning. So that's not three 24 hour periods, but they call it three days. Lazarus is in the tomb for four days, but if you go to three and a half years, 1260 days. You find that there's, there's a correlation between the resurrection and the death of Lazarus who's in a tomb for a period of time and he's the one whom Jesus loved. But what happened after four days is he's raised to new life. See, the hope for all Christians is that whether, we, whether Jesus returns and catches us away or whether we go to sleep in this earth suit, we are raising again with Christ imperishable, immortal, as spiritual bodies, in the image, fully known by the Son of God. And who is it that is going to be raised? The ones He loves. And who are the ones He loves? Whoever abides in My Word. Whoever believes in Him who was sent. Guys, see the whole... The whole thing, this whole culmination thing is pointing to a last day's time when I believe that the church will be no longer here, but it'll be a period of time of these three and a half years because it's been given over to the nations to fill up the wrath of God in the cup of wrath. And when it's full, Jesus comes back and the Antichrist loses in a second of time. And where that is and when that happens and how it is, I'm not, I'm not getting into all of that for the sake of, of argument and controversy. But I'll tell you this. The Bible says you're not destined to wrath. It says that we are not destined to wrath. 
It says also that these things will not take place until the son of perdition has been made known. When he raises himself against all gods. That's in 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So literally, when the son of perdition has been made known, things are going to get really bad for Christians. And the Bible has broken it apart. In Revelation, he breaks it into two periods, a three and a half year period and a three and a half year period. In the first three and a half years, the Antichrist makes peace with Jerusalem, makes peace with Israel, and they set up an alliance that has a false peace. That's why the Antichrist comes in, Rome, in, in Revelation 6 on a white horse. It's a picture of peace. What is happening in the Arabian world right now? Middle East peace. You think the stage isn't set? Salman bin Salman, the son of the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. Now he's the crown prince, the son of the king. Just purchased a painting of Jesus Christ for $436 million to hang in his, in his kingdom. He is now in talks with beginning a, 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 a peace alliance with Israel. They're talking about the fact that this guy, he has enough money because of the world's oil and all the things that are going on. He's actually creating cities right now, cyber cities in Saudi Arabia that are like 60% um, artificial intelligence. And if you read in Revelation, he says the beast sets up, right? He sets up the beast and the beast actually takes the form of life. The false prophet and the beast and this image actually is given life. Well, with artificial intelligence, it's not getting real hard to get there right now. So all I'm telling you is that the scriptures, when they lay this stuff out, and when Jesus has pointing, his life is intertwined with all of it, right? So if it's a seventh miracle in John, it's probably pointing to something bigger than Lazarus coming out of a grave. It's those he loves coming out of the grave, coming out of the time when we have not been here. But what did he say first about Lazarus? He's asleep. Right? Like if we leave, if this earth suit ends today, guys, I'm not dying. I'm not going into a darkness. I'm going to be with Christ. That instant, the whole kingdom, the whole bride, everybody who's been born again and is one with him. This earth suit stops ticking and clocking. You're with him and you're talking. And that's a wrap. (laughs) So literally, you know, I just want you guys to have an encouragement today that the scriptures are replete with Jesus and the mining and the, and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for the sake of purpose and destiny. That his purpose and destiny wasn't just going to the cross and I'm raising from the dead. He's got a kingdom and he's bringing it to planet earth. And we're all a part of it. And where you need to go with this today and where I need to go with this today. Jesus walked out the supernatural things with the father which gave him a roadmap of where he was headed. You need a roadmap. You need to look back and say, okay, Jesus, why were, I was here and I was here and I was here and I'm headed here. I want to know where I'm headed. I want to know that I'm walking with purpose. I want to know the next step. And I'm not talking just the... Christian stuff. I'm saying if God is calling you into a, an industry, if he's calling you into a career change, if he's calling you into the ministry, whatever it is that we would see with destiny and purpose, not through natural, but through supernatural understanding that ultimately 
That resurrection of Lazarus will be bigger because we're alive. Do you understand? Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. Jesus draws men to himself. How? Through people. You're the hope of glory for somebody else because Christ is in you. So because of who we are and because of who he was, the resurrection that is coming, when all the saints will begin to ride the white horses with Jesus down for a battle with the Antichrist, and Christ says with one word and destroys the armies of the earth and sets up a realm of kingdom and says, I'm going to rule in Jerusalem. You can rule here and you rule here and you rule there and we're together. Let's take this earth and continue to process the kingdom of God. Satan's bound. He's in hell. Demons are bound. And it's peace. The lion lays with the lamb. We're a part of it. And we're not just aimlessly making it through. Having meetings. Like we should all be spurred on today to go, Okay God, what is it? Where are we headed? You notice that in the miracles, Jesus didn't stay in Cana. Let's just stay here. This miracle with the, with the uh, wedding was pretty amazing. Right? He didn't just go to Jerusalem. I'm just going to make sure the religious people know what's up. He went in. Boom. Truth. Boom. Went to the sea. Boom. Went to the mountain. Boom. Went to the sea. Boom. Went to this place. Went to that place. He had purpose and destiny because he knew every person who believed in him would one day raise out of a grave that they couldn't raise themselves from. That's awesome. And we made it about spitting in the mud. Anyway, I could go forever. I'll stop.